0: Time for a visit from Dr. Bernice Shafarik from Shafarik Dental on Route 66 East in Columbia. And she always has intriguing topics to discuss and delve into. And today's topic is, can we trust science? Bernice, good morning. Thanks for stopping by today. And what brought this topic up?
1: Good morning, Wayne. Well, I think about five years ago, it never would have occurred to me that I needed to talk about a topic like this, because I think in the past, people did trust science more than they do today. Um, So I thought it's a good time to discuss it, because in my world, if I didn't depend on scientific evidence, I wouldn't be able to do the job that I am able to do in helping repair people's teeth. I mean, I can't depend on somebody who's not really an expert in the area telling me what I should do to make people healthier. So for me, it's really important to trust science. And then we have something like a pandemic where the rug is kind of pulled out from under us and there's really not a lot of other places to turn for trusted information than, than science. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, and you mentioned the word expert. So who is an expert in science?
1: So, you know, they're called scientists, and we have experts in lots of different areas. So we have people who are plumbers, and we depend on them to be the experts in plumbing. And we have dentists that we expect to be the experts in fixing teeth, and caring for oral disease. So that being said, I don't go to my plumber to ask him what I should do about my toothache. And in the same vein, nobody comes to me as a dentist and asks me how to repair their water pipes. And the reason that we do that is because we know that people have certain expertise, and they've been trained, a lot of times they're licensed. After we go through that process of deciding, well, we're going to, for example, call this person because I see on their website that they're a plumber, you know, and they're licensed and they have some credentials, some of us then go a little bit further and check on what other people have said about that person's skill because we know that. Not everybody is exactly the same. So the same process happens in science, that scientists have to be vetted and examined in terms of why we should believe in what they say. But I believe in the area of science, that process is kind of on steroids, that we definitely have to hold are scientists to a much higher standard. And I think that scientists themselves hold themselves to a really high standard because otherwise they won't get published. In the world of science, you have to be published in what's called a peer-reviewed journal in order to get grants and to continue to have credibility and have your colleagues work with you.
0: Well, Bernice, what this reminds me of is a show I did about 15, 20 or so years ago with some of the engineering professors at the University of Connecticut, and the topic was engineering ethics. The point is that you go to engineering school and you wind up building bridges or buildings or things like that, and people drive over those bridges, they're assuming that bridge is going to hold every now and then. They don't. Was that an ethics violation? So the, the point is there's an ethical background to what the engineers do. And I got a feeling that what you just said is similar for scientists. They have an ethical responsibility to make sure that their research is done properly and the information is disseminated the same way.
1: Yes, and it's definitely uh, on the one side when we talk about ethics and values, you know, those are sort of personal um, traits that we expect people to have. So, over the many, many years we've been doing these shows, Wayne, when we used to do it in the studio, you would look at the big ream of papers I brought with me and say, wow, you really did your research. Now, on most of the topics that I talk about, I could probably wing it. I probably don't have to look up any articles or research in order to talk about a lot of the topics we talk about, but... I have an ethical obligation to research because things change. And I may want to get up in front of you and say something, for example, about the relationship of diet and uh, dental care. And it may turn out that new research has shown something different. Now, that leads to, you know, what is research in my world Research is not just Googling it because I can't really trust some of the sources that appear on the web. You know, and those are sometimes people who have decided not to do what I do and really research their topic, but they're just saying what they're saying. So for me, research means peer-reviewed journals.
0: And I'm assuming you have tons of paperwork in front of you this morning?
1: I do have tons of paperwork in front of me, and I also have some of the experiences I've personally had that have led me in a certain direction. So my undergraduate degree was from McGill University in Montreal, and McGill was a very trusted research school. There's a lot of research that goes on there, and because of that, the whole community in the science departments at McGill was very um, clear about what our obligations are as scientists. And one of the obligations I learned that I don't think is talked about enough was to be able to present your information in a way that anyone could understand it because the professor who told me that said if you can't explain it to a five-year-old, then you don't really understand your subject. And if you don't really understand your subject, it's going to be hard for you to do any experimentation that leads to useful information for the public.
0: How is research done? Is that what the scientific method is all about?
1: Yeah, so there's definitely a scientific method that's followed in general. So with a scientific method, the first thing is you identify a problem that you want to research then you develop a research plan. The interesting thing for me, when I was working at the Yukon Health Center in research before I went to dental school, I realized that a very important part of that, developing your research plan and identifying a problem, is the discussions you have with other colleagues. So, There would be a bunch of postdoc fellows, people who had already completed their doctoral degree and were working on additional research, and they would gather, like, in the cafeteria around coffee, and somebody would throw out their idea of, you know, so we were, I was actually studying um, a diagnostic test for multiple sclerosis, so our research basically was to look for what element was common to a lot of patients with multiple sclerosis, a protein. And if we could identify that there was one protein that was universal to most patients with multiple sclerosis, then we could test for that protein. So that was kind of the idea. So presenting an idea like that, the other people would say, well, what if you have this element that's similar to that? How are you going to correct for that? And somebody else would say, you know, I think I heard about someone who's doing that research, and they ran into a problem. So there's a lot of discussion that happens. So when we talk about my topic of why we can trust science, partially it's because there's a lot of interaction that happens because most people don't want to start researching something and be doomed to failure because they haven't, thought about a lot of different things. So then the next element is to go ahead and conduct your study. So when you conduct your study, you need to have a reasonable amount of people that you're studying. So that's one of the first things that gets looked at.
0: Sample size.
1: Sample size. So for me, when that person stands on you know, gets on TV and says, well, I took this medication and my memory's much better. To me, there's very little value in that because I don't know what his memory was like before he took the medication. I don't know if he's an outlier and he's the one person who reacts to this medication differently. So sample size is a very important part. Another important part is you do have to present, nowadays you have to present, your research project, if you're getting a grant from the government or from another agency that says you have conducted ethical research. So part of ethical research is privacy, for example. You also want to create a sample that is typical of the population you want to study. So you need a pretty diverse sample. So there's a lot of those elements that go into it, but let's say you already go ahead and you start your research project and then you analyze, you evaluate the results, and you come to your conclusions. The next step is to publish that information. So in the world of science, to be a credible scientist who is recognized as an expert by other people, You have to have your studies published in what we call peer-reviewed journals. The term peer in science is not just, you know, it's not a group of your friends. It's a peer group are people who have studied similar topics, and they're going to evaluate your work and decide whether or not you followed all the rules to create the appropriate environment to come to the conclusions that you came to. The next step after that is to generate new ideas. So when we talk about research, my go-to when I want to research something is NIH's PubMed. So it's, it's um, an area where you can find scientific articles on any topic that you type in there. So once you go in there, one of the things you do is you look at the study, and it is always listed whether that study had funding, where the funding came from. So if you have somebody studying a certain drug that was developed by Pfizer, and Pfizer is paying that person to do the study, then you're going to look at that a little bit more critically because there's a goal on the part of Pfizer for that research to show the results that they want. And you also have to list any conflict of interest. So that would be if, for example, you're studying um, you know, a machine that creates a certain environment, and you have a company backing you that's waiting to pay you to create that machine. You can still do the research, but the peers, the people who take a look at your research, are going to take that into account and make sure that there's no bias in your study. There's nothing that's going to color it To the result that you want to have happen
0: bernice does the size of the thing being researched or the urgency of it make a role in how the research is done take for example what happened with covid they had to rush that vaccine through as fast as they could and that also was something which wasn't just the entire usa it was the entire world so on, there are some people who thought that because they rushed it through, it wasn't reliable. What's your take on science when it comes to cases like that and how they make sure that it is reliable research and the vaccine is good? That's just one example. I mean, the polio vaccine is another. There's plenty of others, but I'm just saying on a wide scale basis, when, they're, when when it impacts so many people more than, say, some narrow concept of a of a drug that affects people with a certain malady that most people don't have this was a bigger thing because it was a global scale D- does does the, does is the research is is science does it have an additional responsibility because of the scope of the research
1: i don't think it's an additional responsibility it's the same responsibility but there's definitely urgency you use the word urgency when you look out there at the covid pandemic or polio and people are dying or becoming paralyzed, then you need to up your game and try to get as much research as possible. So that definitely happened during the pandemic. As far as the vaccine goes, what happened that was helpful for things to move along very quickly is that in 2004, I believe it was, there was an epidemic of a virus very similar in the family of the coronaviruses, an outbreak in, um, I, I think it was, there was one in the, it was MERS in the Middle East, and then there was another one that was also in Asia. At that time, the beginning of the 2000s, research was done on creating a vaccine that was actually responding to the spike protein that's on that coronavirus. So we already had that research started 20 years ago. The reason that it didn't go into production is because hardly anybody, I think there may have been two people affected by those viruses in the United States. So they were much smaller numbers. So that same urgency wasn't there. So you also mentioned the polio. So what happened with that is when people realized how dramatic it was, and how crucial it was to get a vaccine, scientists were like volunteering their own children to be study people on the vaccine.
0: Does that mean you give your own kid like a, an exposure to polio?
1: Yeah, because they real and I think the reason they did that is the same thought that some of us had during COVID is, even if there's some side effects to the vaccine, the effect of this disease is so horrendous that it's better to take the vaccine. So it's always a risk-benefit analysis. And, you know, when you were watching a lot of people have the issue, you wanted to solve that problem. And it turned out very well because the experimental vaccines were actually very effective and those children were well protected. So when people say it came out in a hurry, that's not exactly true because the research had started on the mRNA viruses 20 years earlier, and there were people working on it, but to produce the virus, I mean the vaccine, that was what was hurried up because there was a much bigger need. So when people were saying the research hasn't been done, that was not necessarily true. It was done, but it just wasn't widespread and produced because there was no real reason to produce that much
0: And people of your generation and my generation might remember the days of the polio vaccine. I got mine on a sugar cube. I can still remember that. And we didn't mention the word smallpox, but smallpox was another good example of it. And we all got that little scar, usually on our left shoulder area. And that did a pretty good job, maybe not eliminating, but certainly getting rid of most smallpox cases. So in that case, we could trust science. We did. And it worked.
1: Right, but you know, as when we trust science, what I mean by trusting science is to look at actual research that's done that has been evaluated and criticized by other people. It's not just one individual deciding that they have a cure for cancer.
0: Well, let's take a side trip here. And your involvement with the Seroptimus Club and you have a big event coming up on April Fools' Day. Do tell
1: so um, we have changed the name. It used to be the Heart to Heart Ball, and we are now calling it a Toast to Woman Gala that will be held on April 1st. Same venue at the Elks, the same live music The band will be the Shaded Soul Band, and we will have details available. We're just starting now um, to collect silent auction donations, and corporate sponsorships, and our community has always been so supportive um, in helping us with this event, and that is what enables us to be able to give back to the women in the community. So we're looking forward to um, a really fun and successful event on April 1st.
0: And details will be available on your SI Willimantic Facebook page, too. What other initiatives are currently going on with the Serotomist?
1: we just completed our take a stand against violence against women and we raised about twelve hundred dollars and the names were published by the chronicle thank you chronicle and those funds go to uh, the domestic violence shelters to the uh, sexual assault and rape crisis center and towards our grants. so we have two grants one is the live your dream award actually that goes to a woman who is in financial need enrolled in an educational program and is head of household and those applications can be collected in uh, by our local club until January 15th and there's information on Facebook about that also and we also have the live your dream grants that are a $500 award For women who are trying to get licensing for an advancement in their career, so sometimes it's daycare providers who can do additional licensing, but they have to pay for the test, Um, licensed practical nurses, dental hygienists, dental assistants, Uh, there's a lot of professions where you need that credential to be able to advance in your career. So we do have those grants available also.
0: So we've talked about these uh, scientific papers that research produces. How does one of those get published? Could I publish a scientific paper?
1: Well, I think it would be challenging for you to be able to do that, Wayne.
0: What about the science of like basketball or something like that?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I think that that's a good example because those areas don't have the same level of scrutiny as science does. So if you wanted to write a book about basketball, you could just write a book about basketball. You wouldn't have to submit it to a bunch of your peers to review and make sure all of your facts were correct and that you weren't biased or influenced. But in a scientific journal, that has to
0: happen. Well I've already written a book about basketball and I'm not going to write another one but the original question had to do with how these things are published. So you talked about getting approval from your peers and so forth. What else goes into the process of getting one of these published?
1: Once you've done your research and you have your subject matter ready you write that all up and you submit it to whichever journal you would like it to be published in and there are decisions about that also so for example if your subject has to do with cell biology there's a journal called cell it's a peer-reviewed publication so you kind of want to get published there because the people who read that journal are people who also are interested in your topic and your research can advance by showing them what you're doing and then they'll build on that so for example if I want to research a dental topic I go into a dental journal so your first step is to submit your research the way you've written it up with a letter to the editor of that journal saying this is my research this is how I conducted it and this is why I would like you to publish it so A lot of things go into that. Before you ever do that, you usually have gone to your colleagues and people to review it for you and say, is there anything here that I need to change? So in my career, when I lived in Poland for a while and I had graduated from McGill and I worked in a genetics lab in Poland, they were conducting what I thought was incredible research. They were actually printing out chromosomes and mapping chromosomes, and there was a lot of terrific research going on, but they weren't getting published in these journals. So my role was to look at their research paper, which they had written in English and submitted and got rejected, and rewriting that in the scientific language that I had been taught at McGill, and they ended up being published. So, at the time, I thought that that was prejudice and that it wasn't really fair. Now, I think that the reason that happens is we have to have a common language. We have to communicate clearly. We have to be sure that everybody understands the subject matter in the same way. Otherwise, you're not comparing apples to apples. So, we have to have that common language. So the first thing that happens is you do, you submit that, and most often your original submission, they will submit it to peer review, so people will review the article, and then it will get sent back to you most often asking for some clarification or some revisions. They might say, you did not tell us enough about your method, so whatever method you used, Did you survey people? If you surveyed them, what was the survey that you used? So they're very exact about making sure you have all the information there. Then when you resubmit it, then it goes to more extensive peer review. So often when I read an article, they will list in my dental journal that it was submitted at a, on a certain date and then accepted, and there's, usually, there's sometimes almost a year in between there. So that is part of the critical process, that peer-reviewed journals don't let you just say, I think this vaccine is good. You have to have some data to back it up, and there are other science, scientists who review that. So of the 1.8 million research articles that are submitted, about 400,000 are accepted. So that's data from 2015 for publication. So that's only 22% of the articles. So part of why I'm comfortable trusting science is there's a lot of critiquing and evaluation Going behind the scenes before it's ever allowed to be published.
0: Well, we're talking this morning with Dr. Bernice Shafarik from Shafarik Dental about why is it important to trust science. And Bernice, I got an email from a listener. Do you trust the science behind climate change? And if so, what convinced you?
1: So, I'm going to just say up front, I am not a climate change scientist. So I have not reviewed the climate change science the way I review dental medicine, because that's something I have to use. What I have read, and the answer is yes, I do trust the science that says we are experiencing climate change. And the reason that I accept it is because research and people noticing that something was happening started about 100 years ago. In that time, many, many, many scientists have reviewed the data. And the reason that I find it acceptable to trust science is scientists, by nature, don't trust the science. So over that last hundred years, multiple scientists said, well, wait a minute, if that's true, then we should see this effect in 10 years, for example. And they did, in fact, see that effect in 10 years. So over that last 100 years, scientists have reviewed this data and tried to find a hole in it or something that proved that it wasn't true. The research that I have read says about 99% of the scientific community today does accept that climate change is happening.
0: Well, that's a good answer. And that brings up something else, that when it comes to these peer reviews, when it comes to science, when it comes to research, is there a particular percentage of scientists that have to agree before it becomes official policy? You said 99%. That sounds good enough to me, but would 80% be good enough?
1: Okay, so now you're reaching the realm of outside of the scientific community In order to create policy changes, that's a political realm. And, of course, and that's the the crux of our subject, do we trust science? In my mind, if there's that many scientists who have looked at it repeatedly and were unable to find fault with the study, then we most probably should accept that. Whether or not we make policy changes is very different. So, for example, you know, that a lot of things do become uh, politicized. But when I have a patient in my chair and they present with certain symptoms, and I've read in all of the research that those symptoms cause this problem, and if I use this solution, I should have a good result, so I'm very comfortable using that. That being said, since in healthcare we are also scientists, I trust the scientists who are going through that peer review process because I don't know exact numbers, but it's a it's a group of people who review each uh, article before it's published, and the editor also looks at that study and says, wow, they got some funding, for example, from Pfizer. We better get some people in an opposing company to take a look at this study to see if they can find some holes in it, just because they want to get rid of that bias. That all being said, I can still have somebody present in my office And say, and usually they'll say, Well, this is going to sound really weird, but when I do this, this happens. Or, for example, I have a toothache, but I find if I squeeze on it, it feels better. So, some of those things in medicine are unusual presentations, and that's evidence also. I mean, it's not scientifically based. For example, and I'm kind of going all over the place here, but some of the some of the diseases that are more specific or associated with women were not well-researched in the past because there's too many variables with women. They have hormonal changes, and so that it was a more difficult study. But once a group of women started presenting saying, I have the symptoms of things like, chronic fatigue, or fibromyalgia, we as clinicians had to pay attention to that and say, well, we don't have research about this, but there's a bunch of people presenting with this, so we need to take a look at that. So that kind of evidence is also recognized in science.
0: Well, we talk about can we trust science, but there are some people that don't trust science. So do you have reasons why some of these people don't trust science?
1: Yeah, and I think one of the big reasons is communication, which is true with everything. Um, So in the scientific community, it really is kind of a closed community. And if you're doing a doctoral thesis and you have a subject that has a whole lot of words even in the title that the lay public is not going to understand, it's easier to just talk to other scientists about it and not talk to the lay public. I personally am very much opposed to that, and I think we need to get away from technical jargon. We need to be able to explain things to people that have a scientific basis in a way that they can understand it. And I don't think there's any problem with people understanding a lot of the things I've talked about today, but you can't really hide behind language, and that sometimes happens.
0: What ways can science convince the non-believers that what they are putting out is legit and should be believed?
1: Well, you know, I'm not sure that that can be the goal of scientists because science really is based in a lot of logic and rational information. And I think our obligation is to try to present it in a way that is understandable, but still backed up in fact. So if we look at how the media presents things, When I was growing up, it used to be that you could trust that the reporter had to find several sources that agreed with the news and said, yes, that is what actually happened. We seem to have gone away from that, and a lot of what I hear in the news media is opinion-based. And in science, we would never accept that. But the media is out there presenting a lot of things. And I'll give one example was um, this uh, reporter published a study saying there's no scientific basis that proves that flossing can improve your gum health. Did you hear about that study, Wayne?
0: I did not, but you're going to tell me about it.
1: Okay. Well... There was a phrase that was used, and you're going to love this thing, because you like new words that you haven't heard before. So maybe you have heard, but have you heard the term schadenfreude? It's a German word.
0: I've heard it, but I couldn't define it.
1: Well, basically the definition is to take pleasure in someone else's misfortune. That's what that word means. And one of the researchers who was not a dental researcher who was – using that article as an example, said that was a good example, but that reporter seemed to delight in the fact that he was able to present that flossing isn't good for you. And I understand where that comes from, because a lot of people don't like to floss. So if you want to get your article read and uh, have a lot of the media pick up your article, write something that people want to hear. So, a lot of people like to hear that, oh, I don't have to floss. Well, the reality is, that's a very difficult study to do, because one, it's hard to get people to agree to floss when you explain to them why it's important. It's hard to get people to tell you the truth about whether they're flossing and how often they floss.
0: Oh, I'm guessing you can look in their mouth and tell.
1: Exactly. So that's the bottom line point that we in dentistry get to see patients come into our office all the time and the ones who are flossing to clean in between their teeth, everything looks a lot healthier and their gums don't bleed. So we in dentistry agree that we don't really need a study to prove to us that flossing is good. And actually there was One study that was done in Sweden, because they have um, nationalized dental care, so they actually go into the schools, So they were able to have people go into the schools and make a comparison of when they flossed the kids' teeth and when they didn't. But it still was a flawed study because, you know, that was five days a week, so you don't know what happened on the weekend. You also don't know if the group that you didn't floss their teeth for them if they weren't off flossing on their own. So you need to, if you want to study something, you have to create an environment where you can come up with credible results.
0: Well, you know what I say, if you're pressed for time, just floss the teeth you want to keep. Bernice, what's the role that political preferences play in whether you align with science?
1: So I believe that in the distant past, that was not really something we would be adding to a discussion about trusting science. But in today's world, there definitely seems to be some alignment of people's political views and their scientific views. And I think that makes some people go along with a view because it's supported by someone who they're comfortable with politically. So, some of the research I did for this show um included reading some articles about by a woman who actually has really gotten into this topic of why people don't trust science and what the issues are and she said she actually welcomes going to talk to people who don't have the same scientific view that she has because when you do that, it's an opportunity. see what they're thinking about and then you can go back to research and say okay they're telling me that you know A or B happens when you do another thing and is there any support in research for that so within the scientific method that's really a part of science is to have people constantly questioning so you can go back and look at the research, or if they're coming up with a question that you don't really see a well-designed scientific study that proves that, then that's a research project for somebody else to pursue.
0: And we talk about reasons people don't trust science. What about an economic impact, a campaign by industries to generate distrust when their goals are threatened by scientific findings?
1: So we have clearly seen some examples of that. So for the people who were producing cigarettes, and that was their incentive for people to buy as many cigarettes as possible, they were actively opposed to research showing that um, cigarette smoking was bad. The opioid crisis was a similar area where we had a lot of advertisements and marketing. And the media was, you know, there's like a media blitz that says, you know, this will help you. Those activities are hard to counteract because they're reaching a lot of people. And the scientific community understands that they're threatened by the actual scientific findings. So I think if we look at the situation of the tobacco industry, what ended up working is to actually publish graphic ads of what has happened to people who were smokers. And that was substantiated by the fact that we did the research and we knew that people who smoked had a much higher instance of for example oral cancer my area
0: and another factor that may play a role in reasons people don't trust science is they are saying or feeling or thinking that scientists keep changing their minds which i would say simply means they have new research which outdates the old research
1: that's very true, Wayne, but it's, it is confusing. So, you know, I will hear the general public saying, well, you know, they used to say that butter was bad for you and then they said butter was good for you and, you know, how can you trust anything that they say? The answer is exactly what you said, Wayne, is that there is constantly new information happening and we're finding out new things and often our environment is changing so if we go back a hundred years and people were not driving automobiles as much which meant they had to walk to get places so maybe having higher intake of cholesterol was not as much of a problem because they were getting more exercise just naturally so I am actually very reassured by scientists changing their minds, because to me that means they're not doggedly sticking to one theory. They're looking at all of the new information. So when we talked about publishing scientific papers, part of the goal in publishing a paper is to get other papers to cite your article. So that means that They start some new research because they read something in your article that made them think, oh, here's another question that we need to look at. And most scientific articles at the end and the conclusions often, you know, it can be frustrating when you're reading it, but often they will say, here's what we really didn't look at. For example, in the dental world, sometimes it's hard for us to get large studies because You know, our patients don't end up in the hospital, so they don't have electronic records that you can research and look at to compare things. So if we come up with a new dental material, you sort of depend on it being used in dental offices to take a look at that. So when we read our articles, often it will say we need a larger study or we need people to see what effect the environment has, for example. So that constantly creates new questions, and then scientists can take a look at that area and publish another paper. So that constant evaluation and looking at why is it that what we said might not be true, that's why I find it easier to trust science because it's one area that's constantly looking at itself saying, is that really true, or how can we prove that
0: that's not true? So we've had a long discussion about can we trust science this morning. What conclusions do we reach from what you've been saying this morning?
1: So basically what I just said, science really doesn't trust itself. It's constantly testing itself to see if The theories that came out are really true. So even after, for example, a vaccine comes out and we've given it to a billion people, there will be research that goes back and looks at how many side effects were there so that we can come up with a realistic picture of, okay, so 1% of the time people seem to have this effect. That kind of research takes time. And we may not get those answers right away, but I think we can trust science because there are people constantly looking at why what we have already accepted might not be true.
0: And then how about a social and consensual element of scientific practice?
1: So we definitely, in scientific practice, people do not accept one individual's opinion it has to be supported by a group of researchers. And it has, for example, if a drug company comes out with a new drug, what physicians will do is look at the studies that support that. You know, did they only test it in one population? Was the research supported by just the drug company? Have other people looked at that? So it's never just an individual decision when you hear about a scientific study that proves such and such. It's never the individual. It's always a group.
0: And then you talked about this earlier, the scrutiny the scientific community gives to these studies. And there's a lot of people, a lot of eyes checking these things out. And if something wasn't right about the research, I'm guessing that that research would be outed pretty fast.
1: So we do have all of that that happens by the peer review before an article get published, gets published. But along with that, there are revisions afterwards, and that actually did happen with that original study in um, England that suggested that vaccinations cause autism. Once the research was out there, what people try to do is to copy that research to see if they can get the same result and it turned out that no one else got the same result as those original people had gotten in their research and they actually did publicize put into the journal a revision that said there was the following fault in our study our conclusion was not accurate that of course never gets publicized as well but within the scientific community there's that safeguard also, that there are people who are imitating those original studies to see if they really do get the same result.
0: Well, Bernice, this was different. This was interesting. Can We Trust Science? Our topic this morning, Dr. Bernice Shafarek from Shafarek Dental in Columbia, S-Z-A-F-A-R-E-K. They're on the web at Shafarikdental.com and on Facebook at Shafarek Dental. Thanks for joining me this morning, Bernice. Thank you, Wayne. 14 WILI Willimantic and 95.3 FM.